This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? Uh, we are here with our good friend, our mentor. The old fart who's cool enough to say what up. <laughs> what up, Michael? We are here with Michael Ogle. Welcome, uh, Michael. Michael. Sajid, hi, Avi. It's an honor for us to have you on. Michael, I'll just share a personal anecdote, is a person who guided me into public defense without even knowing me. A number of people I worked with as a law student had connected me to Michael. I remember phone calls with him while he's riding his bicycle. <laughs> I remember him meeting with me for lunch when I was in California to take me through a mock interview in North Berkeley. Uh, so, Michael, thank you so much for being on Aider and Better. Uh, you're welcome, man. Truthfully, uh, thank you both, uh, Avi and Sajid, uh, because youngsters like you youngsters who care who are committed who are uh, push the envelope uh you guys are keep us all alive i wouldn't be able to continue doing the work if it wasn't for uh the education and the inspiration uh and the backbone that you guys give me thanks michael that Thank means you, a michael. lot You're welcome. on this episode of eight or in a better we are going to talk about district attorneys and we're going to talk about a game-changing memo issued by Larry Krasner, who uh, is making us rethink the role of prosecutors in mass incarceration and whether this justice system can be fair. And our hope is to add to the mix, to add to the conversation about what else we think as people who are practicing in the system, prosecutors can do to make the system more just. Michael, welcome. We gave a little intro, intro about you. So you are the supervisor of the public defender homicide team here in Santa Clara County. Um, and how long have you been a PD in this county? I still try homicide cases. Yeah. I consider myself the anti-supervisor. Okay. Uh, I've been in this office almost 10 years. Uh, I began as a law clerk in the public defender's office in May of 79. So one way or another, I've been doing public defender work virtually exclusively since then except for a, a six-week period in between termination of my law clerk job and acquisition of my first line public defender job. It's almost 40 years in public defense? Yeah, almost. Wow. You don't. Who's counting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you've been a number in a number of different counties in the Bay Area. I know Alameda County, Santa Clara County, Solano County. Am I missing missing any of them? Um, yeah, San Joaquin County. That oh, wow. was my first line public defender job was in uh, Stockton, San Joaquin County. And then you're known statewide for your role as an educator to the public defense community, both through the California Public Defender Association and other forums. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement with those um, organizations? I'm on the board of uh, directors for the California Public Defenders Association. The last mm, probably 12, 13 years of my uh, legal profession activity has been with CPDA. Uh, earlier in my career, like from 1997 to two, 2006, I was more active in California Attorneys for Criminal Justice. So I've been on the executive board of both organizations at different times and uh, more more devoted to CPDA, uh, uh, was once president of CPDA. And through actually through both organizations, I've been able to get some legislation enacted, most recently a couple of bills and, and one in particular I'm very proud of. Back when I became a public defender in 2008, um, this office, Santa Clara County's office, sent me to the San Diego Trials Skills um, Seminar week-long conference, and you were the uh, assigned faculty to my section. So I re remember learning uh, jury selection from you and how to 
better my voir dire practice. I thought I knew everything and anything that I needed to know about voir dire, but you definitely gave me some added skills. And then the second thing that's amazing about you, Michael, is that you are so responsive and so willing to share your expertise and knowledge with everyone and anyone that asks for it. I don't know how you have the time for it, but you, I send you an email, you know, at 7.30 at night when I'm in the midst of trial and I almost immediately get a well-versed, thoughtful response from you. And it's, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's received that type of mentorship and guidance. So we're really grateful for how you've shepherded so many public defenders in our office and across yeah. the state. Avi, you've probably had similar experiences like that. Yeah, no well, doubt. We, I hope that's not why I'm here. <laughs> no, you're not this here is, for that. Yeah, but, but This is we have, ambush, Michael. We're here <laughs> to just praise you. Yeah, we this all, is, we yeah. all help each other. That's the bottom line. <laughs> you're getting the eight or a better and, lifetime achievement. And you award. guys help me too, right? I mean, Avi, you're on research, and I see your uh, emails out to the office answering people's questions. And Sajid, you've been a trial animal, you know? Uh, so, like I said, you guys really do inspire and teach me. So right back at you, brothers. Thank so you. we're going to talk about this new uh, DA memo today uh, in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, uh, the topic of this. The uh, topic of the podcast. podcast. Now, enough about us. Now <laughs> yeah. it's time to talk about this justice system that's, that's uh, working or not working. So the uh, memo was issued by Larry Krasner's office. He's the district attorney for Philadelphia. He ran for the top spot district attorney role in Philadelphia, got elected, which in Philadelphia is a major hub in our country, and it's a major place where criminal justice issues are uh, swirling, especially in the city of Philadelphia, let alone in the state of Pennsylvania, where we've seen a lot of case law come out of relative to the death penalty, relative to juvenile LWAP, and things like that. So it's a pretty significant moment in our country's history where we have an outsider elected to the top prosecutorial spot in a major uh, city in our country. I think he had been an attorney for some Black Lives Matter activists who had been arrested during protests. He has been prosecuting constitutional violations or other statutory violations through civil rights litigation, but never, never been a prosecutor who ran against a in-house or you know a, a, an attorney who was a prosecutor at that office who ran kind of a standard campaign of law and order, Tough on business crime. as usual. And the the interesting thing for me was seeing this person who had all this promise, saying all these things that could be really wonderful, and then getting in and wondering, how is it actually going to play out? You know, are the environmental factors that exert on everybody, the pressures, going to lead to business as usual, right? right. Will everyone quit? Will everyone stay? And just it'll just be uh, lip service. And this memo suggests like a massive first step in terms yeah. of He's doing different things. He also let go, I think, 31 prosecutors in their office. Um, I think that was part of one of the initial moves that he made. In addition to this memo is that he kind of cleared house for people that weren't either aligned with or willing to align with uh, his new direction. So he did definitely, definitely walk the walk and is, is doing it as we speak. I think, Avi, you sent me a message or you sent me a a post where some judges were showing some resistance to his to his new practice. There was a negotiated resolution between the defense attorney and the prosecutor's office, and the judge either busted the plea or would not participate, saying the adversarial system still has to function, as if you know there was some abandonment of the adversarial system by us not doing the same thing that doesn't work over and over and over again it's like someone call for help the prosecutor isn't asking for a max term the prosecutor <laughs> isn't saying we need more incarceration the prosecutor is engaging in diversion yeah. what well, are I we going to do 
<laughs> does, doesn't the system depend on over 90% of cases resolving by a plea disposition? So isn't that exactly what they were doing? They could say no deals, max. And then the judge's concern about the adversarial system would be put at bay, but every other concern would be kind of aggravated and yeah. made worse. Here's, here's what the beginning line of this memo is. These policies are an effort to end mass incarceration and bring balance back to sentencing. Michael, you give us a thumbs up. Yeah, that's a pretty awesome uh, aspiration. He has a number of categories in the memo. So one category is decline certain charges. That's the first option. Declining charging uh, marijuana, cr- marijuana possession, prostitution cases, drug paraphernalia cases, things like that. So things that essentially create kind of the logjam in our criminal justice system that often where our jails are often filled with people that are either serving time for or getting arrested for or you know, being arrested on bench warrants for these, these little petty offenses that uh, clog up our system. The second category is charging lower gradations for offenses. So in California, we have infractions, misdemeanors, and felonies, and the prosecutors have discretion about where they charge for lots of cases. Theft cases could be charged as a felony in some circumstances, or a misdemeanor, and it's a huge difference. So he's saying if you can charge a felony or a misdemeanor or something like that, go the lower route. Penalties are sufficient to hold a retail thief accountable. What are, what are we going for two-year sentences for? The other category is just to give an overview or to divert more. Uh, if a person can get their license, give them a benefit from that. Use individualized consideration. Enhance reentry or use reentry more. And then there's a bunch of stuff about plea bargaining. Uh, it excludes violent and sexual offenses, various felony weapons offenses, but it says make plea offers before below the bottom end of a mitigated range. Request shorter probation. There are folks who are on probation for five years when the evidence shows that the violations either happen in the first year or they don't happen at all. So this office is saying, go with one year probation. The probation department f- supervises 44,000 people. There's no way you could be effective at actually providing supervision. So it's time to clear out that log of folks and focus on the people who actually need supervision, right. uh, assuming people need supervision. And then some ideas about requesting less time for technical violations beginning part of my career was sitting in department 24 uh, helping cover the violation of probation calendar for people that are on felony probation and so often these folks were incarcerated one and then being sent to prison because they had violated their probation because they had missed an appointment missed a drug test you know something really minor but then they were sitting there in jail clothes and getting shipped to prison for 16 months two years three years begging and pleading the courts for another chances and it was a nightmare it was a nightmare, and that's exactly what was occurring. Well, the, the violation of probation is where you have the least leverage as a, a, a defense attorney or public basically, defender. Basically, have no leverage. And, and you're just there like, I, I remember when I used to do the arraignments on violations of probation, there would be a person and they had like a robbery or something like that, but they got probation. It was, whatever it was, it was probation eligible and they literally had a positive marijuana test. I'd get a sheet of paper, a violation petition, and it would recommend three years prison. Yeah. To explain it to an individual that you have, you're living your life, you're doing things pretty well, you have this positive marijuana test, you thought it wasn't going to be a big deal because you're just a normal person who would not think that 
you know, maybe you get a fine, maybe you have to do some community service or something like that, but that you're going to be sent to a prison, that the state of California, that the people of California are going to send you to prison for three years for that. I mean, well, probation's definitely been used as a tool to uh, effectuate mass incarceration for a long time. The office I spent most of my career in Alameda County, 24 years, way back in the, uh, probably in the 90s, I remember, uh, you know, East Oakland, very poor inner city neighborhood, and uh, especially in bad economic times, an area where people are going to buy drugs. A lot of young black men or teenagers getting arrested on street corners for supposedly selling, uh, you know, a $10 rock or supposedly having some cocaine. And who knows if they're really guilty or not? Who knows if it's just really cops just coming out and harassing people? And to be sure, there were lots of complaints from the communities where there was rampant drugs because drugs brought violence with them. And so a lot of the older people were really wanted some more enforcement to reduce the violence. But the attitude was basically, if you're a young black male hanging out in a street corner, we're rousting you. And people were getting rousted. What, and as far as we could tell, whether or not they were really doing anything. But the mere fact that they were hanging out on street corners in areas where there were high crime was a bad thing because uh, just being there in their eyes was promoting crime. And so people get rousted. You come in, you're in custody back in the days before there was any conversation about eliminating cash bail. And so you'd be in custody on a possession for sale case. You might not even have had anything on you, but it may have been found on the ground when the cops come up to you or supposedly found on the ground when the cop says he found it. Um, and you're in custody for two, three weeks. And uh, you, your option is, okay, um, we'll make you a deal. You can get out today and come, come back for sentencing for four weeks and you'll be on probation. And they eventually made it five years felony probation. That was a standard deal. Or you could stay in and, yeah, you can go to trial. But, you know, it's going to take 90 days for you to get to trial. And who knows what's going to happen to trial because, after all, it's going to be your word against the cops. And there you go. I mean, of course, in 99.9% of those kids took the five years felony probation to get out of jail now. And then now the next time the same cop sees in the same neighborhood, they just roused him again. And now you don't even have a right to a trial. Right. It's just the judge deciding whether to believe the, uh, the cop or the youngster. So many of those kids went to prison. Right. And I always think about those violation of probation calendars. I just, I was like, this is the, this is the crux or the, the heartline of, of mass incarceration is these violations of probation, these technical violations, these little minute violations for people that likely shouldn't have been on probation in the first place. Um, but then it, it just kind of, the ball keeps on, kept on rolling and kept on rolling until it became this epidemic that finally people recognized, but it was happening every day in our courthouses. Well, and look right here in, our county, Santa Clara County, was notorious for years, the restitution calendar, where I mean, these are indigent people, right? That's why they are our clients. And they end up get, being hit with restitution for twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. The law says, the Constitution says you can't be sent to jail or to prison because, based on your uh, financial indigency, your inability to pay. But, okay, 
you can only pay $100 a month. Well, guess what? You're not going to pay your $20,000 restitution within the three years of your probation. So what do they do? They threaten people with probation violations, got them to sign off on suspending probation. And people were literally on probation in this county for 10 years. And then if anything goes wrong in that 10 years, they get shipped away. And just being on probation, even if you're not in custody, there's a certain trauma aspect. Um, There's a certain adverse effect on your entire life experience, your everyday life, on the the lives and the quality of lives of your children, your family members. And it, it's that, that bogeyman in the closet. It's always waiting there that it pounce on you and take your freedom away. Yeah. And, and it's really a form of, of cruelty in a certain way. And it's completely classist. Initially, I looked at all the talk about marijuana and I thought, okay, but really we have like deeper problems you know, that need to be addressed. Like if you have any positive drug test, should we be talking about incarceration? And I was thinking like, let's go way farther. But this is a really big first step uh, to say, we're not going to violate anybody for a positive marijuana test because you have to think about how that actually plays out. Right. You have unfair, unequal distribution of people who are on probation. If you look at the community who's actually arrested, convicted in terms of a racial breakdown, then you have problems about who's going to be testing positive for marijuana and get a violation under somebody's discretion. When is somebody going to merit a prison sentence for a positive marijuana test versus another? There's prejudice that can come in. And so just saying we will not violate anybody for a marijuana test is addressing one part of that real ugliness to prevent some person, that person I talked about, from going to prison for three years yeah. just because of marijuana. And how is that enforced? When is somebody worth a break? When does somebody deserve a break? When does somebody deserve to be arrested? standing on a corner with a joint in their pocket. Right. There's ways that this is producing really ugly results and taking marijuana out is, it's a good first step. I, I get that the public is more comfortable with rolling back marijuana criminalization than they are with rolling back cocaine, crack cocaine, methamphetamine, you know, or prescription drugs. Or any sort of violent crimes or anything like that. But, you know, let's start. The other thing about this memo was the requirement that the line prosecutors, when requesting a sentence involving incarceration, would have to state the cost of incarceration on the record um, and essentially justify to the court and for the county uh, why that cost was uh, is appropriate for this particular offender. Did you either of you have I any? I love that part. I think that was the most impressive part of the overall policy. Being an old person, I remember once upon a time when we used to spend more money on secondary education than we did on incarceration. Right. But uh, during the uh, Duke Majin era in California, it completely went the opposite by Larry Krasner forcing people to, to deal with this question. Yeah. Is it really worth it? You know, are, you, is, are we really justified in spending $65,000 to send this person to prison or in jail for a year? Uh, is, is that really what we want to spend our money on? Or would we rather spend that money on more firefighters or more police officers? Or trying to prevent these crimes from occurring in the first place Crime by, by um, remedying our schools, remedying child care programs, whatever it might be. What's amazing to me about this memo that's kind of the theme that I see kind of permeating throughout it is making line prosecutors think before they they request their kind of robotic uh, request for sentences. You know, like I feel so often in our courthouses that prosecutors just kind of spit out numbers without really thinking about 
what those numbers mean. They spit out, oh, this case is worth four months, six months, eight months, a year, you know, whatever it might be, or, 10, or 15, 10, 20 15 years. And yeah. they just, they just, well, that's what, that's what these cases go for. That's the line we get. That's how yeah. we have always done it. And they don't really stop at all to think about how does this manifest in terms of cost? How does it manifest in terms of impact on human lives? Um, what does it mean for our clients? Like you, we talked about earlier to be on probation for five years compared to three. What does it mean for our community for someone to be incarcerated for a year in terms of cost? So stopping a DA in their tracks when they are making these decisions in our courthouses and making them making them really assess the totality of their of their decision before they make an offer, before they make a request of the court, and then making the court consider these things too. It's it's really a groundbreaking shift in, in thinking um, compared to the, our practice that we've seen so far. For too many years, too many prosecutors have insisted on high sentences just because they knew they could get them. Right, right. And that would be the driving force. Take what we can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there's a line in the memo about this this cost inclusion. Each case, each defendant, and each sentence is unique and requires your careful consideration. Actually thinking about people and understanding their context and thinking through consequences in real terms. Right. The amount that they instruct is to use $42,000 for one person for one year, $3,500 a month, and then they have a description of the actual cost of pension, benefits for correctional employees, health care for incarcerated persons is closer to $60,000 a year. And they ask their line prosecutors to think about how the cost of incarcerating a person for a year is about the cost of a social worker salary, about an introductory teacher, about a police officer, about a firefighter. That's, that's, that's you know, thinking about what our whole effort is about yeah um you know do you think that they should do this in other prosecutors offices yes <laughs> do you yeah. think defense attorneys should, do, do you think defense attorneys should do it do you, i i've never made this argument as i've advocated in the cases like i've never said to a judge you know like your honor the cost of incarceration in california is forty five thousand dollars lowball yeah, it's much higher here. Yeah, yeah. I, what what do you? What's stopping think? us from 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 saying those things? I mean, you know, I, I again with these these sentences back when I started as a PD in two thousand eight and then two thousand nine, two thousand ten, I would handle these drug cases, clients that were charged with simple possession of methamphetamine or cocaine or crack cocaine, and then they had strike priors. And so at that time, those those simple possession crimes were felony crimes, and so then our clients were automatically looking because they had the strike priors at 32 months minimum, six years maximum. And then we had to bring these Romero motions asking the judge to strike the strike for purposes of sentencing and to give our clients some lesser term than the minimum 32 months. So often I would stand in court and the judge, you know, summarily would grant the Romero motion on these simple possession crimes because that was just kind of normal practice. But then instead of giving the client, getting the client out that day, first of all, the clients are in, sitting in custody for while this whole process is going on. And then instead of giving the client credit for time served and releasing them on probation that day or giving them a paper commitment on a 16-month sentence to prison at that time, uh, I had it happen so often that judges would give two years or they'd, they'd just give a little bit more to keep the client in for a little bit longer, almost to like teach them a little bit more of a lesson in some bizarre warped way. And that happened all the time. And so the, the judges were not thinking at all about the cost of incarceration. They were just trying to like stick it to our clients a little bit more, squeeze them a little bit more and keep them in a little longer so they don't feel like they're getting out that day. 
I mean, to answer your question, so when I think about those moments in my practice, if I stood up to the judge and said, hey, judge, you know, you're keeping our client in for some unknown purpose for this much longer is going to cost the state this amount of money. You know, if we're not able to pull at their heartstrings because of the impact on our clients, then at least maybe we can think, get them thinking about the financial ramifications. When you sentence that person to four more months or eight more months and in, in custody, you actually cost our state, whatever it might be, you know, thousands of dollars and to what end yeah it's it's weird because they the mass incarceration problem that we have it's built on individual decisions right each you know it's it's based on individual people getting the sum total of those decisions you don't normally or i i can speak for myself don't normally say judge you know thinking about mass incarceration you should give this person some sentence i think about what would actually succeed for helping that individual about actually tailoring some remedy to address whatever public concerns there are and whatever individual issues the person's having if it's in a settlement posture. But, you know, maybe we should be getting a rule of court or something like that to, you know, instruct the courts to think, what are we doing? You know, what have we been doing with bail, which is something we've talked about before? What are we doing with sentencing to create these really gross and cruel societal outcomes? Well, I, th- I think it's a good idea. It's not going to work with every judge, but with some judges have already paved the way. Like we have judges here locally, like Judge Manley, who started drug court a long time ago. And alternative courts where I think it's really a question of how can we best use our resources to produce a good outcome that's in the best uh, interests of our society. But I think it's reasonable to just keep beating that drum to a judge saying, Your Honor, the issue before this court is how to best use the resources available to the court to accomplish safety for our society, protect the public, and help rehabilitate my client so that he does not you know, stay in a life of crime or does not do this again. Right. And I, I think it's hard to argue with how do we best use our resources. And once we uh, get people to buy into, it's a question of how do we best use our resources, which is what Krasner is talking about, right? It's better to use all this money that we will be spending on these mega years to, in other ways by providing providing some resources that will help prevent this from recurring and protect the public. One thing to attack as we think about the way we've set up this system is the real challenge is when the costs of the costs that we have to bear for these decisions are set up so that we can have somebody else pay them. Right? So <laughs> so you know when a, if a local government is thinking about how to handle a problem and they're handling the costs of if they handle it locally with probation but if they send the person to state prison, then that's not their health care bill that they have to handle. Mm-hmm. It's like an externalities problem. It's just like, well, I mm-hmm. can make this someone else's issue. And that's where federal courts get involved mm-hmm. for prison overcrowding. That's when state legislation happens to say you can't charge things as felonies. And we have to kind of break those places where the real thinking is what are the what are our resources? What are our opportunities? What should we be doing for this person and for the public? Mm-hmm. Not how do we take one person from it, you know, kind of one budget sheet and put them on someone else's budget sheet. Yeah. Let's let's uh, pivot a moment. So, Michael, we, we've all read this memo. Uh, you wrote the Daily, jo- Daily Journal article essentially advocating for the methodologies or the mindset behind the memo to be adopted here in California. As we look at this memo, what would you add to it? You know, if we were to be able to add some lines to this memo, what, w- what would we add uh, that we would want to see change in, a, in our local and statewide DA's office? A public defender is running for DA up in Seattle. Yeah. And 
uh, part of his platform is that the plea bargaining process is so coercive, it's involuntary, and that's something he wants to attack. So the I would phrase it as, you know, what are our brainstorming ideas for if we could have a better system? Mm-hmm. And if you're a public defender or a civil rights attorney who wants to run for DA, here are some of our yeah. proposals that we think, you know, maybe you should think about as ways to make the system better. Michael, is this the launching of the Michael Ogle for DA campaign? Oh my goodness. As I've said over and over (laughs) again, I'd rather die. (laughs) There it is, publicly stated. I love it. Permanently. Well, you're in, you're, in, you're in first place for my writing candidate. I, in first yeah, well, I don't too. live in this county, so it's not <laughs> happening. In, in Actually, you, know. you stole my thunder, Avi. I am going to write in Michael for DA. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway. So, um, so yeah, what are, what are your thoughts? That column that you mentioned in the Daily Journal, they actually approached me and wondered if I would be willing to write something trying to incorporate what Krasner has done there and see what it can be uh, done here. And... I guess the perspective I'm trying to take is I I think that voters have a right to allocate their priorities, just like the question of resources. And so, for example, we work here in Santa Clara County, a county which voted to abolish the death penalty. 53%. In the last election. You know, that's a pretty substantial uh, majority, right? Um, And those people, if they're really opposed to the death penalty, they wouldn't be allowed to serve on a jury right. in a death penalty case because they would be disqualified. They wouldn't be death qualified. Right, because, uh, oh, I, I'm so against the death penalty that I, uh, I could not vote death in this case. So you're eliminating more than half of the jury pool off the top because of their political attitude. So what should be done about that? If, if it's a county that is against the death penalty, should the DA in that county be allowed to seek the death penalty? Right. Kamala Harris, when she was uh, DA in San Francisco, kind of took to heart the attitude of San Franciscans and never prosecuted a capital case in San Francisco. And one needs to ask himself, should voters in Santa Clara uh, vote for a district attorney who is going to pursue the death penalty? Or since 53% of them are opposed to the death penalty, should those 53% vote for a candidate who will not seek the death penalty? Uh, In other words, put your money where your mouth is. And that's a very real uh, practical impact they can have and that could uh, effectuate local values. Yeah, it's amazing that you say that because I was I was flipping through my uh, sample ballot and I saw that Jeff Rosen, our Santa Clara County DA, is running unopposed. It really was disappointing, especially in this era and climate where we have public defenders or uh, kind of outsiders running for uh, for district attorney's offices that someone like Rosen um, is being is unopposed, despite the fact that he and his office continue to pursue the imposition of the de- death penalty in active cases, and also use the threat of the death penalty in uh, in litigation in terms of having our clients potentially forego trials and take LWAP or life sentences because of fear that the death penalty might be looming on the other side. It's interesting that you mentioned that because that's the first thing that I would add to this memorandum. The The death penalty is outdated, it's archaic, it's expensive, and it's also not in line with the majority of our county. The 53% in 2016 in our county voted to abolish the death penalty, and yet this office continues to pursue it. 
it's, actively. It serves no purpose whatsoever except for to achieve political pandering. No one is more safe if, just because there's the death penalty. Here, Right here in California in the last few months, we've had documented incidents of innocent people wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death. Vicente Benefides, uh was released from death row. California Supreme Court uh, reversed his death sentence uh, on a habeas grant just a couple months ago um, because of false, outright false testimony, junk science in which he was uh, wrongfully convicted of supposedly sodomizing uh, a little girl in, in his custody when it never happened at all. And after uh, the post-conviction lawyers were able to bring in some qualified medical professionals, even the ones that testified for the prosecution at the original trial changed their opinion and all agreed that, it, that the idea of a sodomy was impossible. It could not possibly have happened. And what really happened was a little kid was hit by a car. Uh, and that's how they had the particular injuries they had. And here's this guy who is in prison for 20, 25 years for something that he was completely innocent of. And that's right here in California. Right. And then yesterday's uh, New York Times has a big article, um, d- again, talking about uh, Kevin Cooper, uh, who very clearly seems to be innocent, or at least there are so many questions about his case that how can one in good conscience justify keeping him on death row? Again, that's right here in California. And all the data in the New York Times article pretty clearly shows uh, a frame-up. But the point is, those issues are there. Yeah. And those issues are there over and over again. And that's in addition to the fact that we spent, what, $5 billion for the death penalty since its return in 1977. That's 41 years. And so we spent over $5 billion to execute 13 people. Wow. I mean, we could do a lot with $5 billion. Yeah, um, yeah. And the list just goes on and on and on and on all the reasons why the death penalty is wrong. I had some other yeah, additions ahead, to the ad, ad, other additions to the list. Uh, one of the things that I'm so passionate about and angry about is the continued prosecution of young people as adults, um, despite the changing trajectory in our country in terms of understanding of, of juvenile behavior, adolescent brain development, and the Supreme, the Supreme Court's uh, decisions uh, recognizing that young people are different. Um, we still see to this day, every day, um, especially in California, uh, minors being prosecuted as adults. And uh, and that is another thing I'd add to the list is that uh, a recognition by district attorney's offices that children are different, that minors are different, and that uh, a DA's office here in Santa Clara County or across our state is no longer going to seek to prosecute any young person under the age of 18. I'd, I'd ask for the age to be advanced upwards, but uh, that they should not be prosecuting them as adults. I think that's the next frontier of uh, criminal justice reform. Um, and we're trending that direction, but it hasn't reached the ground level yet here in a county like Santa Clara County where our clients continue to be prosecuted for crimes that they are accused of committing when they're 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. And it's just, um, it's an ugly practice. The ones that I have are mainly geared towards adult plea negotiations and also the pretrial detention process. And I know that this could have some negative effects if it played out in terms of what the offers would be. If the DA believes the case is worth some amount of incarceration in order to serve justice, and the person has been incarcerated for that amount of time, uh, let them go. 
if it's going to be a CTS offer, why don't they turn it down and let them out today anyway and let them go to trial? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they shouldn't get punished anymore just because they went to trial, and they oh, shouldn't yeah. have to pay the ante of extra jail time uh, just to go to trial. Well, if a prosecutor is saying via a CTS offer that the client is deserving and fit to be out of custody today with supervision, then whether they take the deal or not doesn't impact that equation or that uh, understanding. So the client is still fit to be out today with some super, some sort of supervision. So if they're willing to make that kind of offer, then our client should get released and then be able to make that decision if they want to yeah. then accept that offer or continue on their path towards trial. I have these crazy arguments where we're talking about what bail should be set and how in a person's case and the prosecutor saying well for public safety you should hold the person well okay what's the what's the offer in the case uh, credit for time served <laughs> okay so that public safety claim was bullshit right right i mean it it's they're they're only dangerous to the public unless they're willing to take a deal this is this it's is what intellectually we have to kind of get real about this is where the coercive nature of pretrial detention which only comes to bear on poor people is having its vicious effects yeah then you had another kind of related thought right about as as charged offers or is it was it my thought i mean the the idea that if if a prosecutor is making an as charged offer for a certain period of time before trial then that should be the requested sentence after a trial if the person is convicted on the same charging doc. If someone's accused of a robbery, single count robbery, and the offer is one year county jail followed by a five-year grant of probation, whether we agree with probation or not, and then the client turns that offer down, goes to trial, is convicted of the same conduct that they were accused of before the trial. Typically what happens in, in our practice is that that same prosecutor who made that as charged one-year offer is going to stand up before the court and say, Your Honor, I'm requesting a two-year prison sentence or a three-year se- sentence. And then we're begging and clawing to try to get the one-year probation sentence that was being offered before. But again, it's intellectually dishonest. There's nothing about the person being convicted after trial that is different than them having accepted the plea before trial, except for there being the the trial tax, essentially imposing a cost on the person for exercising their constitutional rights to trial. Yeah, I think about Doyle and how protected the right to remain silent is. So this prosecutor said, you should convict him, you know, because he didn't testify. And the court said that you get a new trial, this conviction's gone for the moment because you you imposed a penalty for him exercising the right because he remained silent you cannot comment on it it cannot be considered in any way otherwise that right is taken the meaning of the right is taken away yeah. you have a right to a trial you have a right to confront and cross-examine the witnesses against you you have the right to an attorney you should not be taxed or punished for exercising that right Th- yeah, those are some ideas any any other ones before we wrap up well i would move into a different area altogether Every criminal defense lawyer is a law enforcement officer. Every one of us, um, we enforce the Constitution. Hmm. It's not just the penal code that's out there as law, but the Constitution. And that Constitution uh, is the basis of protecting our civil rights, our civil liberties, uh, abuse, protecting us against abuses by police, whether it be illegal search and seizure, whether it be uh, shooting or killing or excessive force against people of color, uh, the abuses that have spawned uh, Black Lives Matter, Brown Lives Matter movements. And DA's offices have power to do something about that. There are a lot of good cops out there, but there's definitely some bad ones. And there are 
cops that sometimes screw up in a particular situation and abuse our clients' rights. And prosecutors know when uh, police do that. Uh, they say that under certain circumstances, if we think it's important and we think it's relevant, we'll let you know. But it's only in those certain circumstances. How about if they would just disclose it whenever it happens, right? This isn't right. confidential pri uh, privacy-protected information. This is stuff that occurs in public. This is not information out of their personnel files. But if this information was disclosed and made public, and I think Krasner has made some comments about doing this, that by itself, the knowledge that that's going to happen, would deter police from committing these excesses. And because who are the people they generally abuse in these contexts? Yeah. They're poor people and people of color, and they know they can get away with it. I'm not saying it's rampant, but it happens. And you know there are way too many people being killed or injured uh, because they are poor, powerless people of color, and police can get away with it. That's a, that's a, a, a place where also, uh, Michael, I'm, I know you don't want us to talk about you much more, but where your work on kind of making the obligation to hand over exculpatory evidence that's known or reasonably knowable to the defense in California is is really worthwhile in setting a model uh, for the rest of uh, our country on how to actually improve this justice system. So I'll just say that's really awesome and meaningful action to kind of walk the walk uh, that you, or walk the talk. I don't know how that metaphor works. <laughs> um, so... Uh, why don't we just take a quick break and then do our things? So, Sajid, uh, do you want to uh, kick us off? Well, yeah, we already talked about it a little bit. You know, I did see the voter election guide, and I'm, uh, I saw that Jeff Rosen in our county is uh, running for DA and opposed. And while I've, you know, had some positive uh, interactions with the DA's office in the time and during his tenure, and, he's, and his office has dismissed certain cases because of insufficient evidence and things like that, generally speaking, I, I'm not inclined to vote for him, um, and I'm going to write in somebody. I was going to write in Michael, but well, maybe, maybe I that's Avi. against his wishes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I'm uh, the reason I'm going to do so is because I, I I'm disappointed by the continued pursuit by his office of the death penalty and of prosecuting young people as adults. He's kind of advocated or put himself out there as a as a reformer uh, as an innovative voice on criminal justice. But day to day, I haven't seen any of those types of reforms on serious and violent crimes in our county. I can't, in good conscience, vote for a DA that continues to. Uh, exercise his discretion in pursuit of those types of policies. So that's my thing for this week. So I'll, I'll go. My thing is just in praise of, of some good lawyering in a context that I'm not very familiar with. There's a, a case, it was in the news a lot, uh, Daniel Ramirez Medina. This was a, a young man. He's mm -hmm. got a child. His father was being detained by ICE. They entered his home where he was sleeping, woke him up, and took him off. He showed them his DACA paperwork, and they said, oh, you lose DACA because you're a gang member. A number of attorneys stepped forward to represent this young man. So the, the, he's the uh, plaintiff in the case, and he asked for an order preventing the federal government from terminating his DACA and also from accusing him of being a gang member. They 
questioned everything. You know, there's been this whole thing in the world, in our consciousness, in the news about the difference between immigrants and immigrants who are gang members. And the gang label was put on this person by the government. Because of some tattoos. It, a tattoo on his forearm, a request that he be placed with Mexican people uh, while he's incarcerated, which is when you're thinking about your safety and where you're going to be, and some assertion. And the biggest piece of evidence I thought was the the tattoo and an assertion by the government that that tattoo makes him a gang member. And the court found that the use of gang membership to deny him DACA when he's otherwise qualified was arbitrary and capricious. And the attorneys brought forth evidence from an expert who had testified in 700 gang cases who said, I've never seen that tattoo signify what you say it signifies. And that testimony went uncontradicted. No background checks indicated he had associated with gang members. There was no corroboration. The life of a person who is a you know suspected gang member involves frequent police contacts and being detained for no reason, having your information supplied in what's called a field stop. So they had nothing. The court said you're not allowed to call him a gang member anymore. You're not allowed to use that anymore as a reason. And one of the things that happened was the judge said, okay, going forward, are you go- still going to try to terminate his DACA because he's a gang member because of this claim? And the government said, yeah, that's that's our <laughs> whole point. He said, okay, I, you, I'm enjoining you from doing that. Wow. You, if you're going to insist on doing something you have no proof for, I'm taking that off the table. So salute to the attorneys who fought this out. You know, they questioned everything. They attacked the most powerful negative fact in the case and showed that it was groundless. One thing I've learned is uh, don't, don't ever underestimate uh, the magnitude of what we can accomplish. And sometimes uh, it's all a matter of taking advantage of, uh, of an opportunity, whether it's getting an, an amazing result for a client, seeing somebody um, has been suffering in custody and we have the honor of giving them their freedom or saving their lives. But an example right now, there's a group of people in San Francisco led by Kate Chatfield and Jacku Wilson. Kate uh, private lawyer at USF, Jacku, uh, PDs in San Francisco. Um, they've created Senate Bill 1437. Their organization is uh, Restore Justice. And what that would do is basically eliminate the felony murder rule here in California so that you can't be convicted of first-degree felony murder just because you were a crimey in a robbery or burglary that went bad. Uh, you, you could only be convicted of felony murder if you're n- either the actual killer or acted with intent to kill or as a major participant with reckless disregard. And that's an example of the um, far-reaching, really thoughtful, and maybe completely undreamed of positive change that we can accomplish, uh, kind of on the footsteps of the Three Strikes uh, (coughs) Relief Act and Proposition 47. So um, go forward. Go forward, everybody. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, Ada and a Better. We will talk to you next time.